STEMI, the Stanford Emergency Medicine Innovation Podcast, where we explore the future of innovation within and around the field of emergency medicine. I'm Dr. Dan Imler, entrepreneur and faculty physician with Stanford University Department of Emergency Medicine. Each week, I sit down for a wide-ranging conversation with individuals pushing the boundaries of technology, research, education, systems, and design within emergency medicine. From the front lines of healthcare entrepreneurship to breakthroughs in the lab, we explore innovations in the science, practice, and art of creating precision emergency medicine that can transform healthcare for all. To stay current on the latest innovations and tips, please be sure to click subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please also send us your thoughts and questions to respond to in future episodes. And now, let's get started. So I'm here today with Dr. John Martin, Chief Medical Officer of Butterfly and 4Catalyzer, as well as a vascular surgeon. Thanks for uh, talking with me, John. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I think to start off, now, I'd love to hear what's going on with COVID and Butterfly. I know there's a lot of stuff you guys are doing, but I'd, I'd love to hear kind of on the ground what you guys are up to and how you're helping kind of the world of us medical providers out there. Well, I think this has been a really exciting time for Butterfly and actually for point of care ultrasound more specifically, uh, because I think if you think about how COVID started and the disease itself evolved out of China across Europe and into the United States, it became very clear from the onset that pulmonary involvement was kind of the key mitigator of the outcome of a patient. And then assessing pulmonary outcome was part of the uh, critical decision-making process of who came in and who went home, in addition to the usual kind of physiologic uh, metrics that we monitor, like oxygenation and, um, and hemodynamic status. Yep. Initially in China, they were using only CT. Uh, but it became very clear with a massive number of people uh, that cleaning afterwards and the volume just made CT impractical. And so they started to turn to ultrasound. Then the Italians got on board, and the Italians have been well-known for actually using lung ultrasound for quite some time. And from there, it just exploded. And so there's been a rapid kind of transformation in many, many institutions around the globe uh, of the importance of having a handheld device that can assess the lungs, that can be easily cleaned, that can be kept in a isolation, if you will, environment, as well as be very functional in these tents that they put out in these secondary sources. Uh, yep. and, and Butterfly just exploded in that environment. So what can ultrasound kind of tell us in this kind of patient population? Like, can it, this can is, it, is, is it a diagnostic tool? Is it a ther like a prognostic tool? Where, where are we sitting with it? So it, it's important, to, and everybody gets very touchy about this, is, you know, you diagnose um, COVID with a culture. Uh, nasal swab, you know, so I don't want to step into that we diagnose the disease with that. However, there are very characteristic features of the involvement of the lungs in patients that have a COVID infection. So if you have someone that has symptoms and you see, you know, diffuse V lines that are irregular, a scattered pleural line, bibasilar lateral infiltrates, that's very characteristic uh, uh, in the absence of effusions of COVID. So it may walk it may swim. It may have feathers and have a quack. Pretty sure it's a duck, <laughs> but we'll need a we'll need a culture to prove it. This here actually gives you some great information. So it does have diagnostic value, but it also, more importantly, gives you a chance to be prognostic, showing you how severe the involvement is, as well as a monitoring device. So you admit someone to the hospital, and we'll share some other stuff, some exciting stuff of monitoring people in the home, where you can actually monitor either the the deterioration or resolution of those of that lung involvement. Okay. When you say monitor in the home, do you mean this is 
teleguidance with a non-clinician at home or do you picture the clinicians going into homes or how do you, how do you picture that? So it, it's really pretty exciting. It's all of the above, but candidly, it started with us developing a teleguidance uh, uh, feature where we could have an expert on one end and then a novice, if you will, user on the other, and you can guide them literally to get a good image. We first went through and released this product from expert to expert, but the FDA during this COVID crisis had some uh, change of heart, if you will, and, and issued a non-enforcement policy so that you didn't have to have things through the standard 510K or de novo um, uh, approval process. We rapidly shared with them what we had and what data we had and, and got their blessing, if you will, to release it. And so we've released it to novices using it in the home. We've got clinical studies going on. There are two papers that are about to come out that are using teleguidance. And, and probably the person that made it most famous was there was a doctor in Spain who was an emergency physician uh, uh, and who actually scanned himself. He had a butterfly, scanned himself at home and monitored his own COVID uh, recovery, if you will, by tweeting his images every day with his butterfly <laughs> in the home. So it, it runs the gamut of teleguidance when you just have a patient uh, or bringing an expert into the home. And we've had a number of physicians at home around the world now that have used the device to monitor their own progress. So when you, when you picture that, do you picture typically a, the patient themselves doing it to themselves or like a home health nurse or who are the, in the stories that you've heard, has it mostly been clinicians doing it to themselves or wh where does that fit in terms of when you say novice, how novice can they be? And it, it's a, it really is, if you think about this, it's a continuum. Obviously it's easy when an emergency room physician is home with a device and he's an expert in lung ultrasound, he can scan himself. Yep. Uh, that's not really our intent because that is an exception rather than a rule. Uh, we certainly see a role for home health nurses going and doing this. Um, but the teleguidance thing was really created so that you could have an environment where it didn't really require that nurse going into the home. So you could have that kind of isolation protection that's really important. And that's why we created it. We're very early in this journey, um, but we saw great utility. We've been using this teleguidance in educational platforms. You know, you can have an attending at home and a, and a fellow or a resident there and they want some help with an image. We certainly saw that application. Teaching students one to many in this regard was another application. And the home obviously was the next one. Or if you will, how do you accelerate education and teach people? One of the best ways to do it is to be able to see the image, see the position of their hands and help guide them to get the right image. And so we see a role for teleguidance, but I have to be candid. People can learn how to scan themselves pretty quickly. Yep. They can't interpret the data really well, but we've developed some artificial intelligence tools to, if you will, tell the user you have a good or bad image. It's really a red, yellow, green bar. And so you move the probe till the green starts getting there once given basic instructions. And we have a really good paper coming out of UCLA that, that shows a, a study that was done basically showing a 20-minute video and seeing how many patients could get good lung images of themselves. Okay. Where we see the future of this is that if you can bring diagnostic imaging into the home, there are a number of chronic medical conditions where you can dramatically impact the cost of care, the quality of care, and clinical outcomes. It's interesting. You hear a lot about these sensors at home, but no one really talks about having imaging at home. So having something like this at home for you know a couple grand for someone with a chronic medical disease, that might totally alleviate their need to go into the clinic, especially in these times, I would imagine. Yeah, and if you think about it, there are 900,000 visits in the United States alone for congestive heart failure. And those admissions to the vast majority of the time are just a volume problem. And so people get short of breath at home. We have no real way to tell 
you know, we can't just use vital signs as a way you need to come in. We have to image those people or draw blood, get a BMP, as you know. Yep. Um, if you could actually image them at home, look at beelines or look at IVC collapsibility, you could pretty rapidly make an assessment. You need some more LASIKs. And while far reaching, and, and one of the nice things about Stanford is you guys are very innovative and you have the ability to look out over the horizon. You know, glucose started with experts running around the hospital checking glucoses. Yep. That's how it started. We eventually got to the point where a patient had a device in the home, had their own instructions and gave themselves insulin based on that. I don't think it's all that crazy to think in some point for obviously intelligent people who can do this stuff, who get the instructions that you scan yourself. How many B lines are there? What's my chart? This is how much Lasix I need today. And you could manage your congestive heart failure. Every single, re every single admission for that's about $14,000. If you look at congestive heart failure, one in four patients are back in in 30 days. If you, if you literally impacted just 5% of those 900,000 admissions in the United States, you just saved about $680 million in healthcare costs. So the upside opportunity is huge. So now when people, talk, yeah, when people talk about this, the big, the big hurdle is compliance. You know, we have a problem with compliance. That's the big issue. And the biggest tool we use today is scale, get on a scale, right? And we yeah. know that weight's crappy, but who likes to get on a scale and say, hey, I've gained weight. It's hard to get compliance with that. But if you're taking cool images and looking at a picture, we've seen patients are pretty excited about doing that. Yep. So it also, I'm sure, engages them in the process because they're the ones doing it. So they feel like they're part of their own care. Um, when you picture who's interpreting those images, do you picture that in, in this kind of telepresence? Is that a primary care doctor? Is that a EM doctor? Is that a radiologist? Because I think across those different disciplines, there's very different skill sets in terms of this. Yeah. And this is, this is absolutely the, the, the Achilles heel of medicine is that who owns it? And you yep. know, you've been through those battles. Yeah. Do this. You're an emergency physician. What, what should you do in the emergency room? And you guys' roles have incredibly evolved over time. And it really is a matter of who has the expertise. Not what your specialty is, but what's your expertise and what's your connection with the patient. So it, there are environments where it could be a radiologist. There are environments, it's my primary care doctor. I'm managing my patient's heart failure. It could be a cardiologist. Or ultimately, you know, you have to look at things. Is it a nurse practitioner who's responsible for the heart failure program? Yep. I think as we develop the expertise, that will define who assumes the responsibility. And I think as we've learned with, with all levels of healthcare professionals, if you know when to ask for help, and you know what you're capable of, then we can right-size the delivery of healthcare in a much more cost-effective way. Yeah, I can imagine too, especially as this removes the geographical barrier, the people who, you know, say an EM physician who's extremely adept at both the interpersonal experience of, of doing this with the patient, as well as reading the images themselves, could spend a large percentage of their time just doing this rather than other parts of their lives and specialize almost into this type of modality. There's such a great opportunity here for care improvement. You know, we talk all the time about reducing readmissions. I mean, that, that obviously is a huge focus of things. But candidly, our, our mantra is how do we reduce doctor days? Yep. I want to reduce the amount of time I'm in an emergency room, I'm in a hospital, or I'm in a doctor's office. None of us want to go there. And clearly, at a time of COVID, it's a really good idea not to be there. So I think this opens up a great opportunity. We have a lot to learn. You know, by no means is it perfect. The coding and reimbursement and billing rules right now are not necessarily in place for, for imaging modality, as is often the case in medicine. The technology and the advances get ahead of the reimbursement models. But if you're looking at a total cost of care or the value-based purchasing world, it's easy to see where 
you could have a nice traction into this and make a big difference. And we just need to now keep moving forward with, with institutions that are willing to do this kind of exploratory work with us and define safety, efficacy, the value proposition, and the health economics that actually come out of this. Yep. You started to mention a little bit about AI, and I'd love to go a little bit deeper into that. So the beginning you're talking about is this, you know, can our images actually be the ones that we want them to be? Um, but I'd love to, to step a little bit further into that and say, where do you, where does butterfly picture AI? Is, is that what's going to be reading these studies in the future? Where, where does, they, does that fit in the near and longer term? You know, I think we look at, and we're all learning. We had great, we, I was part of a panel of people doing a, a conference at the FDA about the role of, of artificial intelligence and where are we going. Mm-hmm. And it, for the moment, with the exception of that one application looking at the eye for diabetic retinopathy, you know, all of these applications are diagnostic aids. And yep. so as we get better and more sophisticated, you know, what's the future going to look like? You know, I stood up on the podium and maybe to the chagrin of many, I said, you know, it's really funny as we develop these artificial intelligence tools, what standard we hold them to. I said, you know, it can't ever make any mistakes as if we don't, (laughs) you know, it's the comparator to humans. If you look at the variability, for instance, and just reading mammograms across the country and, and actually detecting cancers, that variability is huge. And that's just human variability. We do know that these machine learning algorithms can do better. Uh, but we also have learned in all the machine learning world that combination of humans and machines is an even better outcome. So we see the role of this as evolving, you know, providing that diagnostic aid, adding speed, efficiency, maybe decreasing some of the white noise that gets in the way of us doing things and adding consistency. Uh, whether we actually get to the point of replacing doctors, I'm not sure I'm, I'm ready to go there yet because clinical judgment is so important. And I think that we're just going to have to be patient and watch this evolve. But I'm, I'm happy to have any application that will make me safer, that will provide a safety net below me, that will cause me to stop and pause and think of what my initial impressions are of things and can improve my accuracy and consistency. Yep. Um, I'd love to hear too. So, uh, so far, it sounds like a lot of the things that have been built into the butterfly kind of network have been built in-house. Now, AI has started to become, you know, more and more democratized. I wonder how much of what you picture in the future of that kind of application is built inside Butterfly versus built outside Butterfly and put on it. You have and we're, yeah, we're firm believers of opening up the platform, uh, building an SDK that, that others can use their skills and develop the algorithms. The, the goal of Butterfly, and Butterfly really we see as becoming a pivotal part of every physician's you know, armamentarium. You, you can't really look at a specialty and say there's a, there isn't a role for ultrasound in what we do. And we certainly can, in our small little company, build every application that could be helpful. And there's a lot of really smart people around the world. So much like the Apple model, we see a world in which we open up the infrastructure and make sure we have to do it in a responsible way and make sure that you know, people maintain the safety, efficacy, reproducibility that's there. But for instance, we are doing a project with the Gates Foundation and Google uh, together with some physicians both in North Carolina and in Oxford on, on building an SDK that will work with their tool. Uh, to evaluate a fetal gestation uh, in the developing world. So we build some things inside. We're also building the STK to open it up for the outside because if we believe every physician is going to have a butterfly, we want the whole world to be developing on that platform. Yep. When you say everybody having a butterfly, now I know the biggest barrier so far to using point-of-care ultrasound is mostly education and understanding by the clinician themselves. 
where do you guys see that going? How are you going to, you know, there's a whole world of clinicians out there who haven't even touched an ultrasound before. How do you picture bringing them into this fold? Yeah, candidly, I think about Butterfly, and, and, and I know our, uh, our, our CEO thinks of it the same way. We're a hardware company, we're a software company, we're an education company, mm -hmm. and we have to be. And so building out that education platform is going to be a critical part of, of Butterfly, how we evolve. But I, I've, I've thought about, you know, as a vascular surgeon learning ultrasound and doing ultrasound myself for, you know, 20 plus years. Part of all the time as physicians, we think of, well, if I have to learn ultrasound, I, I think of this mental mindset of learning everything cardiac, abdominal, vascular, you know, all of these different things at one time. We look at this as being one of these kind of, we, our mantra is land and expand. Pick very focal applications that you want to learn and get comfortable with, and then expand the complexity and the diversity of your skills as time goes on. We have a wonderful environment of a safety net of, of technologists, radiologists, and expert people behind us. And so what we want to figure out is what can we decide Simple decisions, for instance, those, um, those binary decisions, do you have it, do you not, at the bedside that I can learn and reproducibly do, and then those more complex exams that have to go to the experts can move upstream. So when I say someone can learn ultrasound, you could literally learn, and let's use primary care as an example. You could learn how to do lung ultrasound quickly and identify B-lines. That you can learn quickly. You could learn abdominal scan in a, in, a, in a good number of people to see whether there's a sizable AAA or not, because yep. they're pretty apparent. Yep. And you can certainly learn to tell the difference between cellulitis and an abscess, which is a very frequent presentation to a primary care office. If you just started with those three applications, you could have focal learning, have a nice quality and infrastructure put in place, which we built into the enterprise tools at Butterfly, have a QA service that's monitoring your things. And I think you could be very successful. Then expand into cardiac and complex abdominal and things like that, or never get there and just be comfortable that this is where you're going to use point of care ultrasound. Yep. So in terms of the QA aspect of that, so I know in our department, we have a huge program around QAing so that we can bill for all of our ultrasounds. In that primary care office or in you know, other you know, EDs that are relatively small, how do you picture being able to deal with this like complexity of the QA process? Yeah, so I see this as a 50-50 problem. You know, half of the primary care physicians are employed within a health system. And yep. so you can leverage the expertise inside the system. One of the beauties of the butterfly ecosystem is we have a wonderful pack system, a wonderful cloud system. Let me be more specific. Mm -hmm. A wonderful cloud system where images can be transferred into different systems so QA can be done. And we've developed a QA process within our ecosystem itself that you can just employ. For the 50% that are outside, this is an area that we're heavily diving into and how can we leverage together, for instance, physicians from around the country who are willing to participate this. You could see this as an independent revenue stream where you provide QA as a service. So you're an expert physician, you provide feedback, um, you become part of that process. How do we build a collective working together to assist those physicians outside the system. And so that's another area in which we're focusing on developing so that we can, we can stay true to our core mission of safety and efficacy for the patient and the physician and the health system. Quality assessment, as we've known as physicians, has to be a critical part of that. Yeah, that makes sense. So I'd love to switch gears a little bit. Now, I know Butterfly is part of 4Catalyzer, and I'd love to kind of hear some of the origin around both how that happened, how you guys are thinking about spinning out these companies from, from this other holding group. I'd love to hear how that works in terms of the actual company itself. So Jonathan Rothberg is the founder of all of them. Um, yeah. He is 
really driven, um, helping someone he loves is kind of the his mantra that he goes by. Most of all of his companies he started with some family member or somebody loves having a problem that he wanted to solve. He he made his fame with basically putting DNA sequencing, next generation DNA sequencing on a computer chip. Butterfly was the next one. He had a daughter born with tuberous sclerosis and she needed medical imaging. He saw it being too expensive and too cumbersome and too limited. So he wanted to put ultrasound on a chip. He also was exposed to MRIs and the complexity of MRI in that same process and decided he wanted to make MRIs portable and affordable. So Hyperfine uh, was born out of that mix. And that is a product that has the first, you know, F, in an FDA clearance of a, a portable ultrasound system that can be real to the bedside that a patient could be lying in a bed in an ICU at an MRI done and the staff doesn't have to leave the room. You could, I, I basically, the first time I went there and visited the company, I laid down on a bed, had an MRI done, and there might have been 20 people standing right next to me. It didn't take any metal off. had my wallet there, my phone there, everything, and had an MRI done in my brain in literally five minutes. It was unbelievable. And the projected price of this is, is less than six figures. So that company's flying along behind Butterfly. A third company is COVID Detect. This is a really interesting one, and I can't go too deep into this technology. It's not my area of expertise. But essentially what he's done is built a home test that, that detects the DNA of COVID. So incredibly sensitive and specific for this, the test that can be done at home at very low cost. And he's in the middle of clinical trials right now and working with the FDA to release that one. And there are four others <laughs> that are in the mix all of which have independent groups, but there's overlap. You know, we, we help each other out. We provide cross coverage and services as the maturation occurs. People will step across in between companies to, to help out and provide expertise, but they all have their own leadership with Jonathan actually at the very top. It's an incredible, you, know, you have this tiny town in Guilford, Connecticut, spitting out just the most amazing technology. And it's, it's an exciting place to be. It's fascinating to see the diversity coming out of a single group. I haven't seen a lot of kind of um, companies that are working as a conglomerate to, to spit out startups in that way. It's not the classic story you're hearing, but it seems like a great way to continue to bring new technology because you can use the synergistic ability of the other companies learning to help the new one coming along. Yeah. And as they mature, you know, and you can think of those, those things that are there. So, you know, what about the regulatory, the design control process, the quality, uh, the quality system that has to be put in place you know, you give them a helping hand at first to get started, to get people on the right way. When they get mature enough, then they add their own people. The yeah. same thing, regulatory side. How do we make sure that at the beginning you're following good regulatory discipline? When you get far enough along, you hire your own regulatory people. Same thing for finance and HR. You can think of all those functions where if you had some oversight at the beginning while you're getting started, you could get started, get far enough along, develop into maturity, and then step off on your own. And I think if you can think about it, it's the mother teaching the little gooses how to eat and fly till they're ready to eat and fly on their own. And that's essentially what happens here. Great. I'd love to get a little bit more personal because in your role is a role that is not a perfectly, you know, typical role or um, route for a clinician. Um, but I'd love to hear how you transitioned from being, you know, solely clinical into a CMO role um, and what that journey was like and what, it, what, what happened during that time. Interesting thing. It's one of those things where, uh, where you talk to other people that have done it around the country to see there, there are some combined uh, happy moments and combined misery in the process. Um, yeah. And, and I, I would say, you know, for me, 
personally, I thought I was going to be ready for this because I, you know, I've had my own patents. I've worked with medical device companies. I've sat on advisory boards. I've been in front of the FDA. I've defended patents in Europe. You know, I've written software like this company. I've written my own software product, sold it around the country. I thought I knew things. I sat as a vice president of physician operations at, at a large health system. So I, I knew the C-suite pretty well. And then at that point, I had sitting on 22 different committees around the system. So I really felt like I knew healthcare and thought I knew industry. I stepped in and found out, woof, it's different being on the inside. It's very different being on the inside. Tell me how. What's so different? I, I think partly when you're a physician, first of all, you're used to making an immediate impact. You know, you, uh, you operate on a patient, they get better or worse, depending on your own hands. And even, even, as a, even as a physician in a health system, working in executive roles, you have a, a really strong voice to direct things. When you move into industry as a CMO, and you'll find this consistently, you know, you're not the guy anymore. You know, you're part of the team. Uh, your voice may not be the voice anymore, where candidly in medicine, and you look at the transition around healthcare, the presidents of most health systems these days are physicians. Um, and it's physicians that have developed the business acumen. And I went and got an MBA, so I, I've had that experience. But it's learning how to work with 20-something-year-old um, brilliant kids from MIT and from Stanford, um, with people from the finance industry, from you know Bridgewater and other places, and Google and Amazon, who candidly think differently. Yep. They want to move differently. And so how do you bridge. I think this has been the biggest challenge. How do you bridge the value, the wisdom and experience and the strategy behind that into the innovation and the desire to fly that these kids have and, and not unbridled is where the real challenge lies. And so when are your instincts right? When is their creativity right? And knowing those moments, um, I think has been a big challenge. Can you give me an example of where that's happened? Um, I'm trying to think of, so how quickly you, you let a device go. So, yeah. you know, do you let it out on the market now or do we need more research before we do? Is, is, is this good enough? Um, you know, when we develop technology, uh, like a watch or a phone, we'll get it out there. Let's see how people do. Let's see if it's, if this isn't perfect, we'll fix it later. Uh, well, that, that, you know, that doesn't fly in medicine. <laughs> You know, in medicine, it's just, or let's say the software fails a little bit. If the software fails on your phone or your computer, what do you do? You turn it off, you turn it back on again. You can't do that in medicine. If you're in the middle of putting in something and the software fails, you don't have the option in some of those situations to turn it off and turn it back on again. And so understanding the differences and those challenges um, are great. Here's a, here's a really good tangible example. It's kind of an interesting one. One of the beauties of this company is how fast it can move and the software updates your device. So Butterfly updates, you know, monthly, every six weeks. Yep. Uh, but it requires you to put in an update into your software to update. Well, if you're not using your device every day, let's say you're an emergency physician that does just emergency transport and you don't happen to do the update before you go out on a transport, you plug your phone in ready to go and all of a sudden it says, please pause while your update is done. Exactly. You know, that doesn't work for us. And so, you know, it's, it's just bridging the gap between those two worlds. This is, a, this is a healthcare company with a medical device that's important, that physicians trust their reputation and their patients' lives with it. That's different than a tech company, but we want the speed and innovation, ingenuity of the tech company to bring into medicine. 
and why that's so important, the, the average innovation in healthcare, and you know the statistic, takes 17 years before it becomes standard. That's too damn long. It just is. And so how do we bridge those two is a great example. But I would say the hardest transition has been not taking care of patients. You know, just yeah. that personal interaction and being, and this is the hardest time has been during COVID because it's like, I, I just want to step out of the office, go put my, my scrubs on and get back in the hospital with everybody else and do my part. And, and that's really the hardest part. And I still live in the town in which I practice and I see patients around town all the time and you get this constant, okay, when are you coming back? When are you coming back? When are you coming back? Yeah, when, are you done, when are you done with this other thing that you're doing so yeah, you can get back please, to doing it? Please come please come back. And that, that's probably the hardest part. But it's been incredibly rewarding and enriching. I've had experiences that I would never had before. I've had to grow muscles that I didn't have before. I've had to grow patience and understanding and listening uh, skills that, that are better before. Um, I've certainly had the opportunity to be in the dumbest guy in the room um, with these brilliant, brilliant kids. And, and while I never, ever considered myself the smartest guy in the room, <laughs> these guys give you a whole new perspective. Yep. So when you think of someone, say someone who's younger, who's thinking, hey, you know, I love my clinical job, but I'd love to translate it into, you know, working with a company like Butterfly or the many others. What do you think it was about you that particularly fit well for that type of situation versus others who just may not have thrived in this kind of environment? Um, I think it's been a, I think I, I've had such a myriad of experiences in my career. Um, you know, writing my own software, developing my own products, working with industry so closely and, and sitting in almost every single chair that you could sit in in the healthcare system short of working in a payer or working directly inside a company that I was really prepared for all the different challenges that would come my way, I thought. And I, I was also far enough in my career and I've taken care of enough patients along the way that, that, that I thought maybe it was time that I could do something different to challenge myself. You know, you know, those closest to me saying, good God, you know, and I never thought myself that way, but you were, you were a pretty good doctor. You know, wasn't that enough? Yeah. <laughs> you know? But I, I'm one of those people that kind of this innate hunger of what's the next challenge for me, you know? And so, you know, when I was sitting in these administrative roles, one of the things I did, which was pretty unique is I was, as a vascular surgeon, the president of one of the largest cardio, the largest cardiology group in metropolitan Baltimore, Washington. And I became part of that group when it wasn't popular for vascular surgeons to work with cardiologists. And I was chastised bitterly by my specialty and told that they were just going to chew me up and spit me out. And I ultimately went on to be the president. Um, so I was a vascular surgeon leading a cardiology group and then built out the vascular surgeons within our group. And for me, it's always been, what's the next challenge? But I always maintained that core of taking care of patients. And I think the hardest part of this transition is I had to give that part of this up. And I think... I think, I think it's great to be in here full time. I couldn't imagine doing this job and taking care of patients. You couldn't do it as a vascular surgeon, but you could do it as an emergency medicine doctor doing a shift or two, you know, a month. There, there are yeah. certain specialties in which you could. And I think still being on the street and practicing gives you some extra credibility that I wish I still had. Yeah. When you think of those next challenges, specifically now at Butterfly, what is it that's, what's that big next nut that you think that you guys need to crack? Um, or that you're most excited or most fearful of? Um, I, I really believe um, it's three things uh, for me. Number one is really getting this education thing done right so that we can scale it around the world. I mean, part of, if you think about, you know, 
two thirds of the world has no access to medical imaging. How do we change that? So part of that is, is having a low cost product that's effective. Another part of it is you got to figure out, you know, if, if there are 40 million healthcare workers in the world, 99% of them don't know how to do this. How do I make it so they can? So education is a huge nut that I want to make sure we figure out a way to do. Um, I, I think the second thing is to actually demonstrate from a health economics perspective and a value perspective, just how cost effective and how good for care every physician, every healthcare worker having an ultrasound has, having one will be, and how much it can truly transform healthcare. I think that's the next big nut for me. And then I think the third one in that is how can I really truly bring it in the home safely and effectively so that, so that it can be used for the right use cases to really transform the way healthcare is delivered. There have been some interesting studies that have looked at about anywhere from two thirds to three quarters of medical dilemmas where we don't know just what's wrong with you. We can solve those with simple imaging modalities. Um, and if that's truly the case, and we can make ultrasound imaging something that every physician, every healthcare worker, and in selective circumstances, patients can have available in the home, healthcare five years from now is not going to look the same at all, at all. Yep. Well, that's a future I can look forward to, John. Um, I really appreciate you being on with me, and uh, I thank you, and I, I hope you stay safe out there. All right. Thank you very much. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. And I look forward to, to watching and learning more from you guys out there at Stanford. It's quite an amazing place. And you set a great example for the rest of us around the country. This interview is intended to explore the process of innovation and does not in any way indicate endorsement by Stanford or by our physicians of companies or products being featured.